excuse. The college where we met. And it was so... Um, I guess you, you, you would have to say the word I already used, spiritually oppressive. Uh, there were people that they lived, your spirituality had to be lived in an external way in front of them to such a degree that they approved of you and said whether you were one of the good people or the bad people. It was a college based on a demerit system. And maybe they've changed by now. I hope it has. But back then, there was some of it that wasn't so bad. I mean, you needed to have your rooms cleaned. I mean, what do, what do colleges do a lot of times? Well, we keep messy rooms, and we, we do. So nothing wrong with somebody coming in and writing you up for a demerit if you didn't have the floor vacuumed and the trash done and your bed made. We had to make our beds every day. Well, that's no, no knock with that. No knock with that. One time, though, I did get a, a demerit for uh, scum in the tub. And I did go to the uh, council and, and disputed that. And, and, and I, I said, I'm going to dispute scum in the tub. He goes, why? We can't even check that. And, and, I, and I said, well, I said the Floyder misspelled the word scum. And so I'm just, I'm just putting it on that point. He said, how did he misspell it? I said he put a B on the end of it as if you would write the word dumb. And he said, you're, you're not getting awful close to insubordination here on him. But uh, he, he, I, I could get away with that with that particular, uh, uh, whoever that was in charge, that particular dean. And he laughed about that. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Probably not a bad idea if you know going in to have a place where you've got to have lights out at 1030 where freshmen have to be up standing on the floor at 6.30, out of bed, and somebody coming in to check. That's not such a bad thing if you know going in. I'm not talking about those kinds of things, though. I'm talking, yeah, like a military. And there's a, there's a, you can do that. But at its worst, people getting kicked out for random, unknown reasons. Call it getting shipped. Somebody's getting shipped. They're your friend, and you're supposed to meet them for something. And all of a sudden, somebody is not taking a, a, a liking to them, and they've followed them and dogged them and ridden them up, and they're out. And if you talk to them, you're going to get sent home too and everything done. They're walking with the floor leader until their parents can come around and pick them up. Um, uh, various things where there's no, was no, um, no, no a court of appeals, no... Uh, just like some of the laws that people are concerned about these days where somebody can turn in somebody and there's no due process. That's the word I'm thinking about. And you're just gone. Um, Some hyper things where you can't listen to any music on the radio unless they approve it. We had to turn in all of the records and cassette tapes and get the stamp on it. And and even my George Gershwin didn't pass. Um, and Chariots of Fire was like the most popular thing until somebody complained that that was from a movie. And then they pulled all those in. You couldn't listen to the Chariots of Fire soundtrack because that's worldly. And, and just the whole list of things, and it became very, 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 uh, very, very legalistic, we would say. You ask a girl out for a date, which I'm not even going to get into what a date would constitute, you know, go to the dating parlor, but you can't make cow eyes at her, or you're going to get demerits for that, and you can't talk at certain times. But you ask, and they say, well, how many demerits did you have last semester? 
And these girls priding themselves on not dating anybody unless they kept below the 20 demerit threshold or something like that. It just became hard. And it became oppressive. And it became rules. Uh, it seemed like uh, nearly, it's, it seems like, I know it wasn't this way, but it seemed like every other chapel message was about Achan and sin in the camp and turn in somebody. We don't want sin in our camp. And you've got to turn it in because if there's sin in the camp, this college will fail. And, and so everybody is encouraged to tell everybody to report anonymously. You don't get to face your accuser. Uh, everything. It just became very, 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 very oppressive. Uh, hard. A friend of mine asked me in the midst of this if I would go with him to a Bible study off campus. And it was a Bible study that was led by a Presbyterian. And the policy there on campus was that Presbyterians were probably on their way to hell. They were Calvinists. They probably read a translation of the Bible other than the King James Version. Uh, They probably believed in infant baptism. Uh, There was a lot of things, and it was just an old form of religion. And so to go with him off campus, we had to lie. And we had to sign out. You could sign out. If we asked for a pass to go, if you went to anybody's home on campus, anything other than the malls or a a public place, you had to get written permission from the dean. You'd have to go at like at 10 o'clock in the morning and get that so you could go that night and be back. Uh, But you could sign out to the malls. So we signed out, said we were going to the malls. We lied. And went to this pastor's house near the University of West Florida, um, which is what it was at the time. Now I think it's Pensacola State University, but University of West Florida. And we were at this home of this pastor, and there were some kids, college kids there from the University of West Florida. And the pastor was just kind of a quiet, unassuming, nice man. Um, His wife, Janice, was friendly and welcoming to us. There was a little girl about five years old, one of his daughters sitting in between, just quiet but just grinning at all of us. And I had no idea that 20 years later I would officiate her wedding uh, because I was just there at the time. And we had some singing time with a guitar and some praise music. And then there was a, a lesson. And then he just opened the Bible. John Finley did that. And then there was some prayer time. And then we looked at our watches, and me and Jamie, we had to get back to campus because we had to sign in at 9.30 or we would get demerits, and they could maybe figure out where we had been. So we said, we've got to go before the, the fellowship time, the food part. And you're a college kid, you're hungry, but we had to leave before the food. So I went the next week, and same deal. And I felt something that was there that had been missing. Um, I think it was called kindness and welcoming. Uh, It hadn't been there. And John followed us out to the car that second week, and he said, hey, I noticed you guys are uh, leaving right before the pizza gets here. He said, if you don't like pizza, we can order something else. We'd love to have you stay. Not knowing what we were doing to be there and how we had to race back to, to campus and get in. And you know, I really did cry on the way back. A pastor who was nice. Not like the religious leaders I had 
there for those three years. I'd always gone to great churches, and my parents took us to great churches growing up with pastors. And people even of that bent, not knocking even the bent and the things, but the attitude and the spiritual oppression that was there, where people would say, we have God in a little box, and he tells us what you're supposed to do. And you live this way, and you live that way. And if not, you're done. Uh, Brenda's Kuiper, when she was at, at college, went to the church of a, of a pastor who went to a college that was similar. And when they kicked that pastor out for being a Calvinist, they said to him, God has used you in the past, but he will never use you again. And he went out and had to redo a lot of his college, a lot of his stuff, and, and to recover from that kind of spiritual oppression to seeing something different. I told people it didn't matter as much to me at that time that John Finley was a Presbyterian. What drew me to him, he could have been one of those old-fashioned southern uh, drink the deadly poison and it will not harm you and pull the snakes out. Uh, I would have been in because what God used to draw me was his kindness. Turns out I was open to covenant baptism and I love Reformed theology and the whole idea, when I told these people uh, uh, at the, at the um, Brazilian church when we interviewed them, what drew me to Presbyterianism was really the form of government and the elder rule and not the one old boss at the top that's either got his henchmen working for him or they're trying to topple him. And, and, and constant, I like the plurality of elders. I like that I'm one of five. Um, that, to me, just meant so much. And, and that, that opened the door. But the original opening of me getting right with God and coming to God was the way John was nice to me as a sophomore or junior in college. And I married Paula. And we went to the Church of the Beach because uh, it's nice in Pensacola Beach. And we were the Church of the Beach after we graduated because... All the schools on that college's approved list we didn't want to go to because they were mean to us. At least it felt like that. They probably weren't. There was probably some good ones there, but we wouldn't have even known it. It just felt oppressive. And finally I said, well, Paula, we're going to go to that church. I said, I remember that guy, John Finley. I remember him, that Presbyterian church. Let's go there. And we went there, and they were nice and welcoming. And we heard the gospel there. And... I said, we're going to go here for six months and we're not going to join. Six months until uh, we see if these people are really what they're about. And it took about a year before we had the courage to join a church after what we'd been through. And finally, John came up to us and in his nice way, he said, hey, it's been here about a year now. It's time to fish or cut bait, he said. It's, it's time to, to see, is this the place or not the place? But he understood and he didn't put the pressure on other people maybe should have had some pressure a little earlier, but, but the kindness that you see, the way that a church can be welcoming. Boy, we have hard truths to say. I'm not saying be kind and never talk about sin and death and hell and judgment and forgiveness. Uh, no, we, we have some, some words to say that could be perceived as, as unkind. They're not. They're the kindest things you can tell anybody if you're telling them the truth. The truth is the best thing. But you can say those things and you have a, a, a way to say those things uh, if it's said from a transformed heart 
that's full of kindness. Looking at this passage of these people. Oh, here's how about the transition. But initially it was something in John Finley who became a mentor and a spiritual dad to me to go along with the great human dad that I already have. And the way he mirrored Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul as we see them in this text that God used to bring Paula and me back to himself. Three points this morning. Christian character sketches, countercultural connections, and Christ at work. Christian character sketches. There are three. These are not the only three in the Bible. These are just the three that happened in this letter that, that, that Paul wrote. You want to read about a bunch more people who were influential and were good? Read the last of Romans where he's talking about Phoebe and he's talking about uh, uh, those twins and uh, Rufus and Alexander. Uh, he's talking about names and he lists all these names. These are just three that happen in the midst of this letter. So I'm bringing them this morning because they're here in our text as we go through Philippians. So uh, here's some things about Timothy. He said there's no one like him. I'm going to try to send Timothy to you soon. What they're saying and looking at, um, and I looked up every major translation, I think. I got every one. Uh, and I think they're translating this all the same. There's one little part of a, of a text where they uh, talk about Paul, where there's a phrase and it's got a little asterisk by it, uh, where, where Paul is saying and, and we're, trying, we're implying that maybe the people wanted Timothy back. They sent Epaphroditus, but they hadn't seen Timothy, and they wanted Timothy. And there's kind of an apologetic tone. I'm not going to send Timothy back with this letter because of this. I'm sending Epaphroditus. And you see a little of Paul trying to explain to them, love Epaphroditus too. He's also a good. So there's, there's that little something going on that, that scholars have, have looked at. But he's talking about Timothy, who they, who they loved. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. There's no one like Timothy to me to send to you. And then he tells why. Because he is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. Not a young pastor who's angling himself and positioning himself so that if Paul does get put to death, maybe he can take that power role and slide in there. Uh, he's just there with Paul, not trying to be somebody. Not like the guy I heard of who had a radio ministry. And he was so excited, in a way, <laughs> because he could finally, after James Montgomery Boyce died, he could finally maybe get his radio program in that slot because Boyce was dominating the, the, the radio airwaves that day. And he said to me, with a straight face, and who would have thought they'd keep running these preachers' messages after they died? We still couldn't get into the market. Um, and you go, that is wrong, I think. Or, or maybe, I miss, maybe I misheard something. But boy, um, Timothy wasn't that way. Timothy was genuinely, and Paul knew him, he would be genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare, welfare of the Philippian church. He said, you need him. They don't come uh, like him, even in Christianity. Remember at the start of the letter, he talked about how, um, 
how some people preached Christ out of envy and strife, but he didn't care as long as they preached the gospel, Paul said. Here he says, there's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And you see what he does in this text. He equates being concerned with the welfare of God's people with being concerned with the glory of Jesus Christ. They are tied together. They're tied together. If you love Jesus, you're going to love Jesus' people. And you're going to want, as, as Jesus is glorified, it's as God's people are built up and encouraged. And he said, Timothy is unique. Proven worth. He says about Timothy, he said, yeah, I hope to send him as soon uh, as I see how it will go with me. I trust the Lord that I shortly myself will come. But he said, he is like a son to me. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. That word serve, um, that doesn't really smack you in the face like it might have done if you were reading it in the original language. Serve is uh, from the word doulos, which I guess you could translate it servant. But a better word is slave. He's my fellow slave of God. And we've, we, are, we are belonging to God. God's will is ours. He's my fellow slave, my fellow servant, my fellow doulos, my fellow one. And he said, he served with me just like father and son. We're, we're, we're a team. That was Timothy. He said, so like to send Timothy soon, can't send Timothy this time. Verse 25, I have thought it necessarily, necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Didn't describe him as a father-son relationship, but a brother relationship and as a fellow soldier relationship. And I thought of something, and, and I like to hear this when old school Marines, I don't know how it is these days in, in, in any of the military branches in the modern, but I love it when the old school Marines will say Semper Fi to each other. That, just, that, that does something in my heart when they say that, short for Semper Fidelis, always faithful, always loyal. And that's the way Paul described his relationship with Epaphroditus, fellow worker, fellow soldier. It says, he nearly died for the sake of the gospel. Paul would understand that because Paul also had nearly died several times and would die for the sake of the gospel. He says, this is a man who places his gifts at the disposal of the church. Epaphroditus was a person, a Gentile, looking at his name and everything we know about him. Um, he and Paul would have been at odds. He, he wouldn't have been a, a Gentile to Paul before Paul was saved. I'm getting ahead in my sermon. Paul would have referred to him as a Gentile dog. But the salvation that God brings to people, he's a brother and a fellow soldier. Somebody wrote this. They said, now granted, even if he was a, a not a good 
guy. I mean, technically, we're all brothers in Christ. But to, for, for, for Paul to call him a fellow brother, this is how somebody wrote it. said, had he been a quarrelsome, nagging, restless person, ready to pick out faults and quick to, quick to criticize, he might still in Christian charity have been called a worker and a soldier, but he would not have been awarded those titles fellow worker, fellow soldier. Um, he would have been part of the team, but maybe part of the team, <laughs> you hope, got traded or sent down to AAA to, to learn some things or something. Uh, but the warmth that Paul has for him and the description that Paul has for him, there's something there in Epaphroditus. A warm-hearted, committed messenger. It says he's been longing for you all. In verse 26, he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. That word where he's been distressed that they heard he was ill, uh, not used so often in New Testament language, but two places noteworthy where it is used. I'm racking my brain. This is sort of like me confusing Connecticut with Pensacola. I don't know if it's the only two times but the two noteworthy times, maybe only three times, but at least two noteworthy times, that word distressed is the word that is used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was despairing to the point where he was sweating, as it were, drops of blood. That kind of distress. Uh, and there was another kind that I didn't even put in my notes, but that distress that people feel. He was distressed. He was almost mental about worrying that they were worrying for him because he loved them. And he was that quiet guy, apparently, that didn't want to call attention to himself, but wanted to call attention to them and serve them. And Paul said in verse 29, honor such men. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor him. And then unspoken here, what do we see about Paul himself? Paul could have done what he had to do in other places, stand on his proper dignity as an apostle of Christ. There were times where Paul said, I had to oppose Peter to his face. There was a doctrinal issue, and I got in his grill, and I said, listen, this is not right. And Paul could do that. What's Paul's heart here? Love for Timothy as father and son love for the congregation, love for God, uh, trying to show them the worth of Epaphroditus and praising him. Uh, Paul was a peacemaker and a bridge builder. Uh, The Jews in Jerusalem running into all this financial difficulty, and Paul's taking up a collection from the Gentiles who had more money in the outer regions at that point, taking that collection to them. And, And he did that for a couple of reasons. One is they needed the money. Two is, he rejoiced in how that tied God's church together of all people. And and there was a beauty in this, and you see this in Paul's character. Love how he's showing them and trying to show them the worth of Epaphroditus. And then you think of Paul accepting the Lord's verdict, come what may. He said, I hope to see you too. I hope it works out. Uh, We'll see what happens uh, in my imprisonment and trial, but I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
Somebody wrote this about Paul as you look at Paul's character throughout the whole letter in Philippians. Paul's doctrine taught him that a sovereign God rules all things. Freedom, imprisonment, comfort, discomfort, sickness, or health. Paul's practice was to accept without question what the Lord ordained. It was the Lord who had appointed him an apostle. And the same Lord would ordain the sphere and conditions of apostleship. Be it the old free roving commission to the Gentile world, the restrictive limits of a Roman jail, or the sentence of death. Paul said, I can just accept whatever God gives me. Now, I heard so many good things this week. This week was just like a week of hearing people say good things, or maybe that's every week, and I just didn't notice it, but this week I did. So here's Herb Wednesday morning saying to our men's group about his incident where he lost his sight uh, for a while and didn't know what kind of a heart event was going on. And Herb, when you told our group told our church essentially, you told our nine men that were there, that at that time you had a peace and you said, God, I accept whatever it is you have for me in this case. That just made my heart well with joy. This is God. This is Paul saying and God helping us. We accept and we take it and God comes to us in times we think we would not be so easy. Uh, We'd be frantic. But God came, and Paul's character here was was like that. We accept, we hope what God does. We have our desires for what we hope things are. But what we really know is we can anchor ourselves in the fact that God is in control of all things. And there's really, it's, it's bad, but nothing really bad when we evaluate and see it if God is in charge of it. So we see these character sketches of these three people. Countercultural. It's going to move fast after this. Someone said about the sermon last week, boy, that first point was so long, but then, then, then we got there. Uh, who said that? I forget who said that. Um, <laughs> put your name down in my little book <laughs> so I, I know who said that. But anyway, um, get these character sketches and then take these things. Let's tie them together, okay? Countercultural connections. The world sees family. Family is good. God established family. But what happens in a Christian church? That's ratcheted up. There's a Christian family understanding that even transcends the earthly. Mark 3, 33 and 34, Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and my sister and mother. And Paul describes Timothy as a father and a son working together. And you can have those kinds of relationships. How many times do you, do you hear people say, no, we never had children, but we've got a lot of spiritual children. I've heard people say that. Uh, or in addition to the great kids God gave us, there are some other kids God gave us. And they're, they're of the spiritual kind. Uh, and we have this going on. It transcends an understanding uh, that the world has. It takes what's good in the world, and family is always good, or the concept of family is always good. Some families are not good. 
and not safe and not, not right. But the idea of family is ordained by God. But God takes something and even ratchets up that spiritual family. Slavery is never good. Unless you're a do-loss, a slave of God. Countercultural connections. Brothers, fellow workers, fellow soldiers. Listen, uh, there's something that's in the world uh, that we see pictures of the spiritual that transcend that. Even the mutual love between the congregation and these leaders. Look at, uh, this doesn't happen. Paul longing to be with them. Uh, You could do a word study on how he longed to be with them and and see where his heart was. Epaphroditus being sick, almost deranged that they heard he was ill. The congregation wanting to see Timothy. The groups we have here are pictures of the highest. The desire to belong and be loved and accepted for who we are in Christ and to have a place. And there's a reason why TV shows... uh, uh, with jingles like where everybody knows your name, why, why people love that kind of a, of, of a place. You, you want the idea of place. You want that. And, and the Bible says that happens, can happen in churches and among the Christian community. It says whoever gave up uh, father and mother and, and, and houses and lands and all that, and I won't give him much, much more. So wrapping this up and uh, putting it in its proper context, uh, because remember this is a letter, we take it chunk at a time, but remember what's going on in this letter that we're reading. Uh, Paul had just talked about Jesus sacrificing for us. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He's getting ready to the point where he's going to say this in, in chapter 3 about uh, uh, about um, at the end of, of that, he's talking about his relationship with Christ and suffering for Christ and knowing him and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. In between, as he's writing this letter, uh, these paragraphs, he didn't say, this is chapter two. Hey, what do you think about this, Timothy? I've got chapter one this way and two and three and four. And he, he didn't do that. He wrote the letter. We came along and put chapters and verses in to help us find them easier. So this is part of the letter. So in this chunk that we're doing this morning, there's not explicit Christ in it. But Christ is in it. I had to read a book with my pastor's group. We met this week. And, and, um, uh, and on, on the covenant theology section, which I was defending, uh, Michael Horton wrote, just because if you read a novel about somebody, just because the novel is about the person doesn't mean their name is on every page, but the whole novel is about them and the backstory and everything. This Bible is about Jesus And so where do we see Christ in this section in Philippians? This is our last point. Christ at work. Christ is the one who's doing the work. Um, If you you thought I would say, you be like Timothy. You be like Epaphroditus. You be like Paul. And and rake you over the coals for ways that you're not. uh, Well, you're going to be happily disappointed. Because I'm not going to do that. This is not about that. We look at these things and we know Paul is going to say, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. I look at him and I look at my own life and I go, boy, God, 
You did a good work in these guys. Hope you're doing something in me. Get me to that level. I want to follow you so I can do that. But this is not an admonition to be like them. That's not the point of this passage. Paul didn't praise Timothy and Epaphroditus and then say in his letter, now you guys be like like those guys. Basically what he said to them is, you are part of a body where God has raised people up to love you and care for you. And you be glad. Aren't you glad you're in a church where you've got people that care for you? Appreciate the ones God's raised up. Implied is in the whole body, there's all these gifts. Uh, Throughout the scripture, it talks about all of us when God saves us, our part, we make our contribution. So I'm not telling you to imitate them because Paul didn't tell the Philippians or us to to imitate them. I can't help it as a person to look and compare myself and, and say, God, help me. And I can pray that God will help me learn from them. And if you say, I'm praying that God will make, make my character, I see some things, I'll say, you keep praying that then, if that's what, how the Lord's leading you to pray, that's fine. But it's not about you and your work. This is about Christ's work on your behalf. And we know from Scripture that it's when God comes into a person via the Holy Spirit who's been saved that God does that work. It's God who's at work in you willing to work his good pleasure. What we see in this passage is Paul at his finest, connecting, encouraging, loving the fact that there are people such as Timothy and Epaphroditus in the church. He's saying these men are God's gift to the church, as he said in other passages about leaders and elders. And it's good to have people like that. And so we listen when we here, read the Apostle Paul's writing because we know it came from God. And we know the heart behind it uh, qualifies them because they want God to be glorified. It qualifies them to even tell us hard things when they have to. Old Finley one time said to me, he had to correct me. I've told the guys that there's a funny story and I'm not going to tell that one. It's too long and you've, you've heard it too many times anyway. But uh, one time, I did done something as a little assistant pastor that was learning my way, and John had to correct me. And I did what maybe you do, what I do with correction. I bowed up. I got the coochie lip, the adult version of it. Some of my, all my kids except Lily have done, give the coochie lip and bowed up when they got correction. And I was doing that version, and John said, listen, Dave. He said, it'd be the easiest thing for me and you to just be friends here. But he says, I've got a bigger goal in mind. If you think you're really going to go to seminary and really going to be a pastor, I have to tell you some things that might hurt for the glory of God down the road. And so you need to hear them. Uh, I wish we could just be friends and, and not ever talk about these hard things. But I have to. And what he was telling me then, I, w- I came home and told Paul about it. I said, what he was telling me then is he's really my friend. Um, We listen when Paul admonishes. We listen for that because we see this. Jesus works through our fellow believers when our hearts are right and we're looking for their glory and their goodness and their well-being as as, uh, Timothy thought about, as as we think about their um, 
feelings as Epaphroditus did. And he's saying God's gift to the church for all of us are people who've come along and loved us enough and cared about us that we saw the way they loved and cared us and then they talked to us and admonished us. Another benefit of Christ at work on our behalf in the church that we are part of all these illustrations we heard about. A family, fellow soldiers, co-workers, servants of God. What he's saying to the Philippians, and as we're, as, we're, as we're coming to a quick close here, he's saying, love your church. Love the idea that there's a church. Love the idea that down there in Florida, there's a church ready to love you, and there's something you guys have to give when God moves you there. And there's a place And people call around before they move to a place. They go, what are the churches like there? I need to find a church. That's that's an important thing. And that's what we see here is the beauty of a connected church. And we see Christ Jesus in all of this. Jesus is family, who are my mother and brothers. Jesus is fellow soldier, though he is the kind of general who leads and, and, and first, and goes into the battle first and dies for us. He doesn't lead from behind. Jesus as servant and slave, not my will but thine be done. Jesus serving on our behalf. We have him doing something that we couldn't do. And so we see our church in the flesh. Paul, prior to conversion, had hated people who he now loved. Epaphroditus and Paul would have been at odds. Timothy would have been because Paul didn't like Christians either. But understand, Christ is the one at work breaking down the barriers, bringing us together, and he's given us uh, every Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul we've had in our lives to come along and love us. Summary. You are loved so much by God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that even after your sins were paid for at great cost, the wrath, the hell that Jesus experienced, the paid in full, even after your sins were paid for, God gave his people this wonderful institution called the church. And he gave us these Timothys, these Epaphroditus and these Pauls to love us and care for us. And he is at work inside of us, helping us to be what he wants us to be equipping us to love and serve and nurture and use our spiritual gifts and the talents he's given us. And he takes all of us little people that we are and all of our little churches that we are and we're part of the one big church and God loves and nurtures us and he will continue to do that all the way to heaven. That's where we're going. And we get to enjoy life here. But it's because of It's because of the churches that he gives us and the people he gives us to interact with as he leads us. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being saved, having our sins forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Thank you that you didn't just save us, draw us to yourself, and then swoop us up to heaven. But thank you for leaving us here on earth to be Uh, witnesses 